Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, are you ready to talk about some movies? Let's do this. <laughs> we have a lot of movies to talk about tonight, actually, don't we? Yeah, we've got the two after the endings. But for our top 10 films, we're going to be doing 20 each because we need to catch up before our 50th episode. That's right. It's it's a whole smorgasbord of years that we're going to be covering. We'll explain it all when we get to it. But uh, I think it's going to be a pretty cool pretty cool list altogether. Yeah, lots of, lots of classic movies, some silent, some not, right. some scary, some funny, some classics, I think. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, lots to get to. So why don't we jump into things? Uh, Phil, tell people what movies we're going to be giving after the endings for in this episode. Yeah, well, we'll be going to 1995's Jumanji, which starred Robin Williams, and they're currently making a sequel or kind of reboot, but it's all sort of sort of connected. Uh, but first of all, we'll be going High on a Mountain with Sylvester Stallone for Cliffhanger. Yes, Cliffhanger. A very fun film. I, I, I did enjoy that film. Yeah, I always liked that. I always thought it was one of his better ones, especially because it kind of was sort of as his career was starting to slow down a little bit. You know, it had been yeah, kind of a yeah. few years since he'd had like a real hit. He'd had some misfires like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and, you know, things like that. And then this one came out, was a big hit, grossed almost $300 million worldwide, sort of reminded people that, that Stallone is still a, a pretty kick-ass, you know, action star. And I uh, I really like it. It was nice to see him kind of branching out a little bit from the Rocky Rambo stuff and just delivering a good a good thriller, you know. And I always like the sort of survival movies, and this is like a survival slash bad guy die hard kind of die hard on a mountain i guess if you yeah pretty, pretty much but it was nice as well because it didn't rely on stallone being stallone it wasn't you know as you say it wasn't like a rocky or rambo he wasn't he wasn't particularly fighting that much through it it was more like him using his skills well, character right. skills and trying to trick the bad guys Yes, but, uh, yes, yeah. exactly. And, and a Rennie Harlan one as well, one of Rennie's good ones. Yeah, Rennie made a lot of good films, Rennie Harlan. I'm, I'm a big fan of his, actually. Yeah. I like a lot of his movies. This was kind of right in that prime when he was just really hitting him out of the park one after the other. Yeah, he did make a, did have a good run of uh, good action movies. Oh, for sure. Yeah, do you want to give us a rundown then, Mike, of uh, the events of Cliffhanger? Absolutely. So Cliffhanger, as we said, 1993, starring Sylvester Stallone, as well as John Lithgow, Michael Rooker, and Janine Turner. So in the film, Rangers Gabe Walker, played by Stallone, and Jesse Deegan, played by Janine Turner, are called to a mountain to rescue their friends Hal, played by Michael Rooker, and Sarah. When Sarah falls to her death, Hal blames Gabe, and Gabe is wracked with guilt. Eight months later, Gabe and Hal are called on a rescue mission, but are instead taken captive by criminal Eric Quaylen, played by John Lithgow, who needs their help recovering $100 million in stolen money that crashed into the mountain. I mean, the the money didn't crash in the mountain. The plane that the money was yeah, on, yeah. you know, you get okay. It wasn't just like flying bags of money. You know? yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, it was a whole different take on this film. <laughs> Uh, and then basically we get about an hour of action scenes in which Gabe dispatches most of Quaylen's men. Eventually he kills Quaylen when he brings down the helicopter that he's in. And then at the end of the film, Gabe, Jesse, and Hal reunite, beaten and bruised, but alive. And that is Cliffhanger in a nutshell. Excellent. Very well done. Thank you. So why don't you go ahead, Phil, and give us your day after. Okay, my day after. Gabe, Jesse and Hal are debriefed by the federal agents and it soon becomes clear to the agents that the climbers were forced to help the criminals. So, they're going to be okay. Gabe, Jesse and Hal are thanked by the US Treasury for stopping the thieves and for recovering some of the money. Uh, these sorts of, when Gabe mentioned he did throw the bag of money into the rotors of the uh, the helicopter, they do frown on it, but it's okay. At least it didn't go uh, to the bad guys. Right. The trio then hit the local bar and raise a toast for the friends they lost over the past few days. With the adrenaline wearing off, they all realise how exhausted they are. Hal hugs Gabe and Jesse and heads home. Gabe and Jesse make it back to Gabe's house where they both pass out and sleep for a day. That's my day after. That sounds about right. That was a pretty uh, arduous thing they all went through there. So Yeah, because you often don't see that where they, they have all these amazing things and then you realise they must have so many aches and pains and injuries that they just didn't 
affect them while the film was going on. But, right, uh, right. Adrenaline, you know? Yeah. But then when that wears off, they're going to crash. Yeah, adrenaline, a hell of a drug. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, what have you got for your day after? All right, well, Hal looks at Gabe and tells him he finally forgives him. After seeing what Gabe went through to defeat Quaylen and keep everyone safe, Hal has finally realized that if Gabe could have possibly saved Sarah, he would have. They shake hands, and then Gabe collapses from the exhaustion after everything he's been through. So a little similar theme there. Yeah, yeah. The three of them are rushed to the hospital and checked out, treated for their minor wounds, and then released. A few weeks later, once news of the story has broken, Gabe and Hal arrive at the ranger station to a huge crowd of people. There's a new adventure tour company on the scene, and they're offering treasure hunting tours. With the knowledge that there's some $100 million scattered across the mountainside, money seekers have come out in droves to climb the mountain and try to find some money while they're doing it. Gabe tries to talk the tour guide out of it, but the man ignores him and leads the group of 20 or so inexperienced climbers up the mountain. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Oh, I like that. Thank you. That is my uh, day after there. So how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Gabe, Jesse and Hal have been inundated with journalists interviewing them about what they went through. Their 15 minutes of fame actually goes on for about a couple of weeks. They do the late night talk shows, Hal options a novel about the events, but then the news cycle moves on and they're sort, they're sort of forgotten. They're, they're still there. Just every now and again it pops up, but life moves on. Gabe and Jesse, though, they, now they made a bit of money out of it. They decide to head off to Yosemite National Park for a much-needed break and to climb some of the wonderful scenery that can be found there. And that's my immediate aftermath. And I'm sure nothing at all will go wrong while they're out there. <laughs> you <know>? Nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> okay, what about yours? All right, well, Gabe and Hal watch the group go up the mountain and shake their heads. While they don't think the climbers are experienced enough to go up, they can't technically stop them as they're not doing anything illegal. The next day, as Gabe searches the mountainside with binoculars searching for the group, he notices a black helicopter flying around the side of the mountain. He alerts Hal to it, and they both realize that something is wrong. They start to load up their gear, but before they can finish, a voice crackles across the radio. Hello, Mr. Walker. My name is Frederick Quaylen. You killed my brother, Eric. I have 20 <laughs> hostages here on the side of the mountain. I suggest you make haste on your way up here, alone, or I will have to begin killing them. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, nice. Always good when the brother comes back for revenge. Yeah, well, you know, I was kind of thinking like that 80s, 90s action movie model, like in Die Hard, you know how in Die Hard with the Vengeance, uh, yeah, Hans yeah. Gruber's brother came back. It seems like sort of one of those those tropes. So I thought, yeah, why not have uh, have the bad guy's brother come back for some revenge? Who would you see playing uh, John Lithgow's brother? Oh, that's a good one. Um... It could be John Lithgow again. I mean, he did it with Raising Cain. Right. That's right. That's right. He could take it on. He'd be like his twin brother. I'm going to go with that. I like that. Yeah, there <laughs> <Okay>. we go. <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, why don't you bring us home with your long term? Okay. Gabe and Jesse are having a great time in Yosemite. They claim Al Capitan and the others. And while the local climbers enjoy listening to Jesse talk about their exploits, they're all a little bit jealous because they made the news. So some of them look down on them because, you know, they're not... They say they're not proper climbers, but once they see Gabe and Jesse in action, they realise they're one of them. However, unknown to Gabe and Jesse, a plane carrying a large number of dangerous criminals has crashed a couple of miles away. <laughs> Over the radio, Gabe and Jesse hear that some climbers have been taken hostage, and some of the people are with go, go, oh my God, that's my brother. That's my sister. I know them. Oh my, what are we going to do? Who's going to save them? They realise that they're the closest to the crash, and checking their gear, they head off to help. This time, they're accompanied by a ragtag group of free climbers. It's going to be even more cliffhangery. <laughs> and that could be the name of the sequel, Cliffhanger 2, even more cliffhangery. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my after the end. Of I like it. What have you I got like for it. your horse? I just want to say, though, I, I, I was thinking in my head, like, you, is that the plane from Con Air? Could that yeah. be like, like a mashup of <laughs> like what Con I was, Air hanger? I was thinking that a little bit. It's for the Con Air sequel. Yeah, right, right. There you go. I like a yeah. little mashup of the two. It could be a, so, good, a good... So whenever we get, we're doing after the ending for Con Air... Right. Uh, We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's right. That could be a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, what have you got then for your uh, long term? All right, well, Gabe heads up the mountain alone. It's slow going by himself, but he makes his way up, keeping in contact with Frederick Quaylen via radio. So far, no hostages have been killed. When he finally arrives at the mountainside plateau where Quaylen is, he sees that Quaylen has a crew of five men, all with automatic weapons trained on the hostages. Gabe convinces Quaylen to let them go since he doesn't need them anymore, and Gabe sends them down the mountain. Quaylen tells Gabe that he's going to help them recover what money they can before he kills him as revenge for killing his brother. 
Gabe has no choice but to help, but right before he gets on their helicopter, he hears his radio squelch three times. He throws himself to the ground, and suddenly automatic weapons fire erupts all around him. In a matter of seconds, Quaylen and his men are all dead. Hal emerges from the other side of the plateau. Gabe says, That was a good plan, Hal. They didn't expect you to come up the other side of the mountain. Hal replies, I'm just glad we decided to keep some of Quaylen's weapons hidden away in case of emergency. You like my little dialogue exposition there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little clunky, but it works. No, that's what you get for those you know, 90s, yeah. early 90s action right, films. Right, right, exactly. Hal helps Gabe up, and they start down the mountain, radioing in to the authorities to come and clean up the mess. And that is my cliffhanger after the ending. Well, that's very good. Thank you. Lots of shooting. I, I could imagine the scene where, you know, the, the, get, the bad guys are getting shot. It's one of those ludicrously slightly too long bits. You yeah. know, they're getting hit with all <laughs> right. the bullets and they, they don't right. fall straight away. Right. Well, it just seems too like after you go through all the stuff they go through, like you just maybe you're going to keep a couple of guns handy just in case yeah. something <laughs> goes wrong again. You know, like maybe you're just a little more cautious now that, you know, you're up in the mountains by yourself. Who knows what could go wrong? So you keep an M16 on hand or two. That's all. Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure many people do. Yeah. I, well, you know. <laughs> Sure. Listen, it is clearly my ending is clearly rooted in realism. So, yeah. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, how about some uh, cliffhanger trivia, Phil? You got some for us? Okay. Yes. The film was dedicated to Wolfgang Gullick, who was uh, one of the best sports climbers in history. He was also Stallone's double in the film, but he was sadly killed in a car accident shortly after filming had finished. Hmm. Uh, the film is in the Guinness Book of World Records for. One of the costliest aerial stunts. Simon Crane, a stuntman, was paid $1 million to cross between two planes at 15,000 feet without any safety devices. The insurance company wouldn't insure it, so sliced alone, dropped his own fee by the amount the stunt cost to make sure you know, it didn't take anything away from the production cost of the film. Right. So that's pretty cool. That so imagine, pretty cool. imagine doing that with no safety devices one to the other. Yeah, I'm going to take a pass on that. Yeah, thanks. yeah. Uh, Christopher Welkin was originally cast as Quaylen. Huh. Which, uh, yeah, back wow. then, 90... Yeah, wow, it would have been kind of good. Uh, uh, 93, Walken, yeah, it would have been good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but Lithgow was uh, fantastic anyway. Yeah, he really is. Uh, but the, ha- Rennie Harlan's first choice to play Quaylen was David Bowie. Hmm, which, interesting. Yeah, it would have been a whole different kind of feel to the film. Yeah. There was a planned sequel in 1994 called The Dam, and it would have had Sly's character fighting terrorists who had taken over the Hoover Dam. Oh, that would have been cool. Mm. I could have I gone for that. Yeah, so basically die hard on the dam. Yeah, but I'm okay with that because no one's done it. And having yeah, been yeah. to the Hoover Dam, there's actually a lot more places that you could stage stuff than people realize because it's not just the dam. There's like the whole underground part of it and everything. Well, yeah, that's and where they the keep – there's the giant turbines. I mean there's a lot of places you could hide and kind of, you know, have well, action scenes. That's where they keep a Megatron, aren't they? And, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, no. That's referencing Michael Bay Transformers. No. No. <laughs> Okay, no, but uh, that's uh, that's cliffhanger. It is kind of funny that they didn't end cliffhanger on a cliffhanger. Would that have been too meta? Yeah, it should have been like him, him just standing on top of the cliff, you know, and then suddenly he trips, <laughs> and then it cuts to black. Right, right. Uh, that would have been a very interesting, uh, interesting way to end it for sure. Mm. All right, well, why don't we move on then to Jumanji, starring one Robin Williams. Are you a fan of Jumanji, Phil? I am actually. I always quite liked it. It's quite charming, and it's uh, a lot scarier than you expect for a kid's film. Right. You know, it's funny. I I don't consider myself a Jumanji fan, but I also really kind of want to go back and rewatch it as I was sort of going through it for, for this, for our endings. I was kind of like, huh, you know, I don't know that I ever watched it all that carefully. I think it was one of those movies I sort of watched and only half paid attention to. And I, I remember not loving it, but... I definitely want to revisit it. I think maybe my kids are old enough to, to yeah, watch it, yeah. so maybe I'll sit down with them and, and sort of see if I have a different appreciation for it this time around. Yeah, no, I, I always, I, I think I mainly like the idea more though than the actual film itself. But no, it's, it was quite nice as well, and the whole thing with Robin Williams's character. Yeah, and there's yeah. a history to the game and things like that. Right, like. right, right. I mean, it's no flubber, obviously. Uh, no, no. Well. <laughs> Not many things are. Not many things are. It's so practical, I could do so much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, how about you take us through the events of Jumanji? Okay. Well, uh, Jumanji, 1995 film, directed by Joe Johnston and starring the late, great Robin Williams, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Bonnie Hunt, and a whole host more. But the film itself, well, the main part of the film is set in 1995, where we see Peter, played by Bradley Pierce, Pierce and Judy Shepard, played by Kirsten Dunst, they find a jungle-themed board game called Jumanji in the attic of their new house. They've moved in there with their aunt as their parents sadly died on a skiing trip. The kids start playing the game, and every roll, jungle creatures start to appear. 
They eventually free Alan Parrish, played by Robin Williams, who had been stuck in the game's magical jungle for decades. He was a kid when he went in, but he's now obviously Robin Williams in 1995. And he was playing the game with his friend Sarah Bonnie Hunt. Things got worse until Alan makes the winning role and everything the game caused is reversed. We now go back to 1969 and see Alan and Sarah as children once more. And they remember everything that happened and they manage to change events for the better. And they throw the game into a river. We then fast forward back to 1995 and Alan convinces Peter and Judy's parents to not go on the skiing trip, thus saving them. Meanwhile, on a beach in France, two girls hear drum beats and find Jumanji buried in the sand. Dun, dun, dun. And that's Jumanji. And there's lots of crazy monkeys, there's lions and tigers. And bear, bears. Oh, yeah, my. Oh my. Uh, but it's some, some pretty good effects as well for the time. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. That's All Jumanji. Right. Nicely done. Thank you very much. What have you got for your day after? Alan and Sarah are relaxing just after the new year. They're thrilled that they got Judy and Peter's parents to stay in the U.S. and avoid their deaths on the ski trip, and they've invited the whole family over for dinner. Shortly after they arrive, Alan finds Judy and Peter glued to the television. They're watching a news report about rampaging wild animals on the shores of a French beach. Oh, no, Alan says. It's happening again, Peter finishes. Alan looks at Peter in shock. How do you... Alan starts to say. Peter says, I don't know. I just remembered everything all of a sudden. I do too, Judy says. Sarah rushes in and scopes out the situation. We have to go help them, she says. The group agrees and starts to make preparations, but Peter and Judy's parents have no idea what's going on. Peter and Judy try to explain it to them, but it makes no sense to them. After much argument, Alan finally just knocks them out and ties them up, <laughs> figuring that once they reset the events of the Jumanji game, it will have never happened. And so the four of them rush off to France to try and set things right. Ooh, very good. Thank you. How about your day after? Okay. Uh, Alan Parrish is happy. He's lived two lives, one in the jungle and one where all his dreams have finally come true. However, he begins to regret throwing Jumanji away as he knows how dangerous it can be. Yet he follows events from around the world and picks out goings-on and strange happenings that could be caused by the game. But as nobody appears to be hurt or missing as a result, he just notes them in a big scrapbook. And that's my day after. Hmm, interesting. Thank you. And what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, the foursome arrives in France, and it doesn't take long to find the epicenter of the problems. There are giraffes blocking traffic, wildebeests stampeding, and wild birds terrorizing the citizens. The streets are almost empty of people, and Alan and Sarah and the kids go in search of the girls who started the game. The few people they do find don't understand their questions in English, but they find that by following the animals from the lowest concentration to the highest, they're narrowing in on the game. Just as the group finds the two girls on the beach cowering behind a towel rental shack, Alan is attacked by a giant lion. It slashes open his chest, causing massive bleeding, and Alan is immediately struck unconscious. Sarah jumps in to try and save Alan from the lion's killing blow, and she's struck down too. Judy starts to rush in to help them, but Peter stops her. We have to finish the game. It's the only way to help them now, he says. Judy nods, and they rush over to the two girls. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. I, I know. Don't, don't care. They better finish that game. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I don't know what happens. Oh, no. <laughs> you could say, you could say, it's a cliffhanger. It's, I was going to say it. I, I didn't want to, but I, I guess I kind of have to. So, yeah, leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger there. Okay. <laughs> All right. How about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Alan's studies show that there may be other games out there in the world. He figures out one is set in space. That was played by two brothers, Walter and Danny. Ah, he also nice. thinks there could be one with a fantasy setting that had been played by a man called Peter Jackson in New, in New Zealand. <laughs> cool. Curious to know more, he begins looking into where these mystical games could have come from. That's my immediate aftermath. Oh, all right. Short and sweet tonight, huh? Mm, just... I'll... Yeah, just getting the big ideas. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It's intriguing. Leave them wanting more, Phil. So what have you got then? We've got a, a mortally wounded Alan and Sarah. Okay, well, Judy and Peter struggle to get the two girls to understand, but they finally get their message across. The first girl to roll rolls a winning number, and the game suddenly comes to an end. Everything is reversed, and Alan and Sarah and the kids find themselves back in the U.S., but all have memories of their adventure. Alan immediately excuses himself and makes a phone call. A few days later, Alan's agent abroad reports back with news. They have effectively tracked down and procured the board game, and it's en route back to the U.S. When it arrives, Alan invites the kids over, and they and Sarah try to destroy the game, but nothing works. Not fire, not a shredder, nothing affects the game at all. Finally, Alan decides that there's nowhere safe to keep the game, and he comes up with an audacious plan. 
Using a contact he has at a private telecommunications company, he arranges to have the game launched into space on an upcoming satellite mission. A few months later, Alan, Sarah, Judy, and Peter watch on TV as the Telcast 12 satellite launches into space with the Jumanji board game on it, never to bother the Earth again. And that's my after the ending. Very good, yeah. So if you can't destroy the board game, you want to get it as far away as, as humanity as you can. So That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Now, I will tell you, I have an after the credits scene tonight. Oh, go on. But I'll wait until after you do your ending. So, Okay. Ahead. Because it's after the credits, so i got to give oh, a little yeah. time that, for that's the true, ending yeah. to sink in. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. So, so so yours, in your long term, the game's been blasted off into space. Correct. Okay. All okay, right. my long term then. Yes, let's hear it. Uh, despite his research, Alan never discovers the source of the games. That's a bummer. Yet his search never becomes an obsession, and he lived a long, happy life with Sarah. They had a couple of kids and lots of grandkids. Now an old man, he lies on his bed, totally at peace and content with his life. His wife and children are with him as he breathes his last. His eyes close. He then opens them, confused. Panicked, he looks around. He is in a strange place surrounded by strange glowing creatures with too many limbs. They appear to be looking at Alan. He looks down at himself and sees he is also one of the same creatures. Confusion begins to clear, and he remembers he had been playing a new game with his friends, and he had won. They pack the game, called Humans, away, and decide what they'll be playing next week. (laughs) That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I like that. <laughs> okay, then, but uh, so we have the credits, it all fades to black, and then suddenly the people still in the cinema see. Well, 700 years later, two figures in spacesuits trek across the barren moon's landscape. In the horizon, the second of the galaxy's two suns begins to rise. As they approach the spacecraft's wreckage, they begin to catalog the debris. The work goes quickly as each explorer uses all six arms to help in their work. After several hours, they figured out what most of the wreckage was used for. They stop to rest, and one of the workers sits down and accidentally kicks a brown box with his foot. Two small cubes with dots on the sides spill out of the box. They look at them quizzically, and then look at each other in confusion as they hear an alien sound. The jungle drums have begun to beat again. Wow, wow. Yeah, jungle animals in space. Yeah, right? So I figure, you know, the satellite went off course somehow, ended up on this other world, and so now it's all going to start again somewhere else. Interestingly, though, we both had multi-armed aliens in our endings because that doesn't usually happen. When you said that, I was like, really? Like, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so So some some similarities, but no, no, I like it, though. Yeah, I just thought it'd be kind of a fun little postscript to kind of have it all start over again, but somewhere otherworldly. Yeah, you need the the drums. Right, 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 exactly. All right, well, Phil, how about some Jumanji trivia? Okay, the the board game had 110 spaces, so there there were lots of results that we never, ever saw. Uh, Robin Williams didn't appear in the film until 28 minutes in, and Tom Hanks was the first choice to play Alan, but other actors considered were included Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, Sean Connery, Kevin Costner, Harrison Ford, Bruce Willis, Mel Gibson, Bill Murray, Bill Paxton, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sean Connery? Yeah, no, that's that's the one that stood out the most. Yeah, it would have been a slightly more serious film, I think. I think so, yes. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's Jumanji. All right, very cool. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up our endings for this episode. Let's move on then to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of films and share our top 10 favorite films from that year, except this week we're doing something a little bit different. That's right. Uh, Tell the listeners a little bit more, Mike. All right. Well, as our 50th episode is coming up in just one week, we want to do something a little bit special for that. So we're going to sort of do a little uh, fun thing with our first 50 years worth of Uh, 100 Years of Hollywood episodes. But in order to do that, we had to play a little bit of catch-up. So we are going to cover uh, 16 years from the earliest years of Hollywood in this episode, kind of a a greatest hits of all these years to sort of catch up so that by the time we do our episode next week, we'll have covered – Uh, Still a smattering of years, but we'll also have covered everything before 1940. Bring us up a little bit to some more modern times so that uh, from here on out, our episodes will have more modern years kind of in our our 100 years of Hollywood. It's because we didn't start. Yeah, it's because we didn't start doing these top 10 films until uh, like I think it was episode nine or 10 of this of the show. So we've got a few things to catch up with. But this is it's just a good way to get caught up so that by the time we get to episode 100, we'll be able to do our last hundredth list of these so that everything will line up nicely. So we can kind of start our new thing. We like to think ahead. Yeah. And uh, also kind of get some of those earliest years, which, uh, you know, we think aren't necessarily the most interesting years for all of our listeners. We'll sort of wrap them up, get them out of the way, keep things a little more exciting moving forward from here. 
But don't worry, there's going to be lots of good films in these lists. Oh, yeah. This is definitely uh, jam-packed with big-name films, lots of big stars. So this is I, I'm actually really excited to share some of these. Mm. So, Phil, why don't you give people the full list of what years we are covering this week? Yes, we'll be picking films. We're not necessarily going to be have, each having a film from each one of these years, but the films will be 1918, 1919, 1921 to 1927, and 1929, 1931, 32, 34... 36, 37, 38, and 1939. There you go. So kind of a smattering of years between 1918 and 1939. So kind of look at it as these are t- – we're going to do our top 20 this week. Uh, these are our 20 favorite films uh, from these two decades, from, from these particular years, from these two decades. So uh, a lot of good films. We are going to go a little bit longer on the list because it's so many years, but we're, we'll keep it brief for especially our first 10 of each. So don't worry. Uh, like I said, there's some big-name films in here. So – uh, let's jump into things. Okay, then, Mike, do you want to start? What's your number 20? All right, well, my number 20 is The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939. It is the first Sherlock Holmes film starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, and uh, big fan of them, big fan of Sherlock Holmes, uh, and I love The Hound of the Baskervilles, so that's my number 20. Okay, an excellent choice. Uh, my number 20 is The Scarlet Pimpernel from 1934, uh, directed by Harold Jung and starring Leslie Howard and Merle Oberon. Raymond Massey, it's the classic story, which has been remade many times, but this was a cracking version of it. Very good. My number 19, kind of a big film, could have been higher on my list, but it's four hours long, and it is Gone with the Wind. Uh, It's a classic. It's an epic. It's one of the most successful movies of all time. I know it probably should be higher, but it's a really long movie. It's hard to find the time to sit down and watch it. So uh, just for that reason alone, it didn't make it higher, but it is obviously a classic. Yeah, it is a classic. It didn't make my list, though, because it's not one... Even though it's a classic, I've never really been a big fan of it. Sure. I can see what I can see why it's a classic, but yeah, it's not not on my list. Understandable. Okay, my number nineteen is the Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, very good. Yeah, I always like uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes. So, and that's uh, this is one of the best ones, uh, but it's very good. Indeed it is. All right, well, my number 18 is also a pretty well-known film, which uh, should probably be higher on my list, but I'll I'll explain why in a minute. It is 1927's Metropolis, directed by Fritz Lang. And here's the thing about Metropolis. It is... Visually speaking, one of the most amazing films ever made, especially considering that it was made in 1927. Story-wise, however, it's it's almost completely incomprehensible for the second half of the film. The first half of the <laughs> film makes sense. The second half, you're just kind of going, what the heck is going on here? Uh, and so as much as I love watching it for the visuals, it's not really a film I can get into from a narrative point of view. So uh, I, I recognize the importance of it and, and the influence it had on things like Star Wars you know, and science fiction filmmaking, but it's a harder one for me to watch just because I, I can't follow the story at all. Excellent point. No, yeah, okay. Uh, my number 18 is Angels with Dirty Faces from 1938. Uh, another classic one. Probably would be a lot higher on some other people's list, but this is the one starring James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart, George Bancroft, and the dead-end kids. But, you know, gangsters being all tough. And it's very, very good. It is indeed. It might be higher on some other people's lists, like, let's say, mine. But maybe <laughs> yes. not. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, my number 17 is 1931's Dracula, starring Bella Lugosi. You know, classic universal horror movie. I know it's going to be higher on some people's lists, and I thought it might be higher on mine. Um, but when I went through and put everything in order, this is kind of where it came in. I love Dracula. It's got some great moments, but it has some slow moments also. You know, a lot of these films from from back then could sometimes be a little bit a little slow in places. Yeah, so yeah. much as I love the film, and I, I think it's obviously a very iconic in terms of its its imagery and the way Bela Lugosi looked as Dracula, uh, there are some films that I just enjoy more. So that's why it's number 17. Excellent. My number 17 is The Gold Rush. It's produced, written, and directed by Charlie Chaplin. Uh, one of his little tramp films also starred Georgia Hale, Max Wayne, and Tom Murray. Well, it's Charlie Chaplin. We all know it. Uh, it's very good. And again, probably be high, but as we did say at the start, this is going to be full of classic lists, and it's a few years, so it's hard to you know, give them all what they deserve, but it's, it's still it's probably one of my favorite uh, Charlie Chaplin ones, to be honest. That's interesting. You know, I'm a big Charlie Chaplin fan, but this one didn't actually make my list because it's not one of my favorite Charlie Chaplin films. I, uh, ah. Yeah, I don't know. I like it, but I don't love it. So go yeah. figure. Yeah. Oh, well, fair enough. But uh, to be honest, though, he's not one of my favorite silent movie stars. That's right. But, uh, that's right. You have said yeah. that before. Yeah. All right. Fair okay. enough. 
So where are we up to now? 16. Yes. Well, my number 16 is The Roaring Twenties, which stars James Cagney and also a young uh, Humphrey Bogart in a supporting role. So it's our second Cagney and Bogart film to make this list. Uh, Everyone knows I'm a huge Humphrey Bogart fan. I'm also a big James Cagney fan. The Roaring Twenties is a pretty classic gangster movie, and I love those. And this is back when they really knew how to do them right. Uh, So Roaring Twenties is my number 16. So I guess it could have been number 20. That would have made more sense. But what are you going to do? (laughs) <laughs> That's fair enough. Okay, my number 16 is Scarface from 1932, pre-code gangster film starring Paul Mooney as Antonio Tony Camonte, and it was produced by Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks, uh, and Hawks also, also directed it. But it's, yeah, it's the gangster one. It's been remade a few times. Yeah, because people out there, you know, some people who are just joining us with films, you know, the Al Pacino Scarface was a remake. So let's, you know... Less of that. I don't like remake crap. <laughs> right. All right. But, fair enough. But it's a good. This one is a good gangster movie, and it's you know it stands on its own as well. I I agree wholeheartedly. And my number fifteen is Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. Uh, once again, as I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of Frankenstein in general, the character, the book, the movies. Uh, I like this one a lot. Like Dracula, it's a great film with some really great iconic moments in it, but it does have a few slow parts and. As I was putting this list together, there were so many good movies that I just had to push some further down than I wanted to, and Frankenstein was one of those casualties. So if it was just the 1931, it probably would have been my number one, but on this list, it comes in at number 15. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with this. Lots of these would be like number one or two if we were doing the individual years. Right, right. So that's why this is just – this is – if you just want to get into some of these older films and you haven't really looked into them, any of these films that we're mentioning, me and Mike are mentioning, this is a cracking list for you to just get stuck in. Absolutely. This is a pretty good kind of primer, if you will, for classic Hollywood, you know, from the dawn of film through the you know the end of the 30s. This is a pretty good list to get started with, for sure. Oh, definitely, yeah. And my number 15 is a, a Laurel and Hardy film, and it's Way Out West. Oh, yeah. Yeah, from 1937, and Stan Laurel produced it, and it's Laurel and Hardy in the Wild West. All right. Well, I said it might appear on my list, and it did. It is Angels. My number 14 is Angels with Dirty Faces, uh, once again starring James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. So no big surprise that it's on my list. It's, you know, it's kind of a – it's definitely a gangster movie. It has the dead-end kids who are sort of like a precursor to the Little Rascals but not quite so silly. Um, So it's an interesting one. It's got a a slightly different flavor from most of the gangster films of the time, and I think that's what I like about it. So that's my number 14. No, you're right there. It does have a different feel to some of the other gangster ones. Yeah. Good choice. My number 14 is Lost Horizon, directed by Frank Capra, and it's a 1937 film, and it's all to do with the lost city of Shangri-La, Mysterious, and it stars Ronald Coleman, Jane Wyatt, and it's, uh, you know, Mysterious goings on the Himalayan mountains and double-crossing and things, but it's a good rip-wrong adventure, and it's by Frank Capra. Yeah, I love Frank Capra. I've actually never seen that one yet. It is on my list to get to, though. I, I do want to watch that for sure, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Excellent. Could have been on my list if I'd seen it, but I didn't. Well, well there you go. What are you going to do? Not much, unfortunately. Watch it, I guess, and report back <laughs> yeah, next that's, time. It's a quite an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my number 13 is from 1937. I expect that some people might think it would be higher on my list, but I'm going to surprise them. It is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, Of course, the first full-length Disney animated film. Uh, It's the one that started it all, as we all know, and it is a classic. But it's not my favorite, favorite Disney movie. You know, I really think that the, the Disney stuff sort of kicked into high gear a little bit later. This was this is an amazing film for its technical, you know, achievements and its groundbreaking animated, you know, full length animation. And I like the movie very much, but it's not one of those movies that I go to and watch over and over again. So uh, it's number 13. I think that's right about the exact place that it should be on my list. OK, no, fair enough. It didn't make my list, but uh, it's still it's it's historically important, though, isn't it, that film? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Okay, my number 13 is 1925's The Phantom of the Opera, the silent horror film starring Lon Chaney Sr. as the deformed phantom who haunts the Paris Opera House. We know the story. It's being turned to a musical, I believe, which has been moderately successful. <laughs> yeah, sound, sounds familiar. I think, I think yeah. I've heard of it. But it's, uh, you know, it's the, Lon Chaney did amazing. He did his, his own makeup and thing, making the creature, which and it was very uncomfortable makeup, pulling his lip up and pushing his nose back. But, uh, yeah, it's... It's a classic movie for a reason. 
and that's my number 13. Yeah, it's a great pick. You know, it, it almost made my list. If we were doing our top 21, it, it would have been in there. Much like Dracula and Frankenstein, it has a few slower moments. But yeah, I do yeah. really appreciate it. I, I like it very much. And now we've covered the, the, the trilogy, if you will, the triumvirate of the universal horror you know, masters. Bela Lugosi, yeah, yeah. Uh, Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney have now all appeared on our list. So that's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good list, I think. Yeah, and that's not bad at all. All right. Well, my number 12 is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, starring Jimmy Stewart. And uh, this is one of those classics that I, you know, I watched a lot of classic movies when I was young. Uh, This is one I didn't see until, I'd say, a couple of years ago. I'd never seen it before. And I really love it. I think Jimmy Stewart's performance in it is amazing. It's about kind of an everyman who goes to Washington and gets into politics and sort of gets grinded down by the, you know, um, just the the back dealing and the rigmarole and the the nasty people involved in politics. So obviously it's a complete fantasy. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's nothing like reality. Yeah. Um, but it is about how this guy, you know, this this every man really does try to make a difference and and how difficult that is. And um, I, I think it's a fantastic film. The only reason it's actually I believe it's Frank, Frank Capra also. The only reason it didn't get higher on my list is I feel like the ending. Uh, doesn't quite live up to the rest of the film. I feel like the ending is just a touch of a letdown. It's not a bad ending per se. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like if it had a stronger ending, it might have been higher up on my list because I, I really do love the movie. So uh, it's a good one. It's definitely worth watching. That's my number 12. An excellent choice. Okay, my number 12 is The Front Page from 1931. Scruble comedy involving a reporter and the editor trying to cash in on a big story involving an escaped murderer it's been remade a few times like uh his girl friday things like that but it's it's cracking dialogue and it was pretty much every version of it's been it works well it's based on the broadway player the same name and this one was produced by howard hughes and it's uh, it's fantastic. If you've not seen this version, it's worth checking out. Yeah, you know, I've never actually seen that one. I I have seen. I believe that the uh, His Girl Friday was number one or two on my list for the year that we did for that. But I haven't seen this original one yet, so I will definitely have to check that out. Very good. Okay, so now on to what's your number eleven before we hit our top ten. My number eleven is a favorite from when I was a kid. It is 1937's Topper, starring Cary Grant. It is the story of a married couple, the Kirbys. They're a fun-loving couple. They drive off a cliff by accident and become ghosts, and so they set about rehabilitating their stuffy old boss, Mr. Topper, the owner of a bank, and trying to save him from becoming a miserable miser. So there's a touch of kind of like the Christmas Carol in there, but it's not a Christmas movie. Um, but it is a lot of fun. It's it's fun watching them play ghosts and sort of you know the interaction between the human and the ghosts. And it's just one of those movies. It was very popular back in the day. It's sort of fallen off the pop culture radar. You know, it's not. A a film I think a lot of people remember now, but uh, I always loved Cary Grant. I watched this movie when I was young, and I really enjoyed it. It's a good comedy, and so it's always been one that's that's stuck with me. Yeah, that's my number eleven. An excellent choice. Yeah, I, I do like the top of film, uh, but think it almost made my list. But it was just outside the top twenty. Fair enough. But it's uh, yeah, I can see why it made the list. It is lots of fun that one. Yeah. Okay, my number eleven is Battleship Potemkin from nineteen twenty-five. It's a Russian or Soviet silent film. Directed by Sergei Eisenstein, one of the first major, major movies. You know, big, huge, you know, hundreds of extras, you know, told an important story. And it's been on lots of lists to say it's you know, one of the greatest films of all time. And it's it's just a stunning achievement when you watch it. If you haven't seen it it's, uh, and you're interested in film history, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That's actually really high on my list of movies that I want to see, but I have not actually gotten around to it. You know, I'm a big fan of Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, and it has that Odessa Step sequence yeah, that yeah. I didn't know for years was an homage to the sequence in The Battleship Potemkin. I had no idea about that, and I always loved that part of the movie. And so when I found out that it was this sort of remake of this classic sequence, I really wanted to see Battleship Potemkin, uh, but I just, I've just never gotten around to it yet. But it is very high on my list of movies to get to. So a very good pick, but it will not be appearing on my list. Fair enough. But that's a, that's an excellent point, though. People have just, if you've just been watching lots of modern films, you know, from like the 80s onwards, if you go back and watch these very early films, you start seeing all these these scenes and you're going, oh, my, that's so... And then you realize how how influential they've all been. Right. 
Right, exactly. So which is uh, it's it's just amazing. So that was our eleven through twenty. We're now into our top ten. So Mike, what have you got for your number ten? All right. Well, this is where it started to get hard to narrow these films down oh, and, and put them in order. But uh, I'm pretty. This is a this top ten list is a, is a list of movies I am pretty pretty happy with. So my number ten is 1936's Modern Times, starring Charlie Chaplin, uh, and it's just a really fantastic example of Chaplin at his finest. It's kind of broken down into four story segments. You know, it's got some really famous imagery him in the gears of a factory yeah, and yeah. him on the roller skates and stuff. And and like most of the the best Chaplin, it sort of has the social commentary as well as the humor. And then there's a romance story involved as well. And so I, I've always loved Chaplin. I love his style of physical comedy. And I think Modern Times, maybe not his best film, but it is certainly one of his uh, films that is most commonly regarded as a great one. And it's a movie that I happen to really love as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like the segments in that, as you say, because it is like lots of different parts, but uh, I didn't like it overall as a whole film. But there's some, it is amazing, though, when you watch it and you see what he did and how he did it, and it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, there's going to be a few, I think, which have uh, been on your list already, but my number 10 is Metropolis, 1927. Very good. Fitzlang. Uh, as you say, I, I totally understand where, you, you know, it's, it, gets, it all gets a bit out there the further into the film you go. But it is, it's visually incredible. I mean, you see, like, the, the robot design and the whole, you know, dystopia of the world and the way, the way he, again, the visual effects. The, it's mind-blowing what they did back then, the, the visual effects, and, right. you know, without, without computers and just, you know, painted backgrounds, build, actually physically building a thing, having hundreds of extras. But it's, uh, it's an incredible achievement. And it's, again, as I just mentioned, this has it's had an influence in so many of the films go down ever since then. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I really do think that visually it's stunning and especially when you consider it was made in 1927, what yeah. they accomplished is is mind-blowing. I I just wish that the story was more you know, coherent, especially, like I said, in the second half. That's really my biggest yeah. complaint with it. But I, I do like the film very much, and I, I certainly can, can look at it anytime. Yeah, it's definitely one. It's sort of in, it's in the public consciousness, even if you never thought of it before. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right, very good. Well, my number nine has already appeared on your list. As you said, this is going to happen a little bit. It is 1932's Scarface, starring Paul Muni. Now, the thing about this film is... You know, it was it was a big hit back in the day, and then it was forgotten for some you know seventy you know fifty years or so. Yeah. And then uh, Brian De Palma made his version with Al Pacino, which I'm not really a particularly huge fan of. But then somewhere in the 2000s, it became sort of this big pop culture icon where you could go buy the ugly shirts at Hot Topic, and you know it was on toys and mugs and posters, and all of a sudden yeah. everybody who thought of themselves as like a you know a gangbanger or a street thug decided to wear Scarface stuff, and that. It's all great and fine. But the original film to me, um, I had never seen it until a few years ago after this sort of Scarface renaissance. And they finally put it back out on DVD and I got to watch it for the first time. And I think it's really terrific. It's a, it's a, a just a great gangster film. It's not filled with big, big name actors. So you can kind of get lost in the characters. It has very yeah. little to do with the Brian De Palma film. So don't judge it based on that. But if you've never seen it, I'd really do recommend tracking it down because it's just, it, it's just one of those films that works on every level it's good performances good story good action you know it's kind of a, a better film than it should be for having come out in 1932 so that's my number nine that's an excellent point i think also some people out there if you have got brian de palmer's uh, scarface on blu-ray i'm sure some recent editions of it well over the past 10 years may have that uh, the 1932 film uh, with it yeah it's like a bonus feature yeah i'm sure it is so you might actually have it people out there might actually own it without realizing it so if you have uh, it's, you, you know, go put it on, you know, next time you want to watch a movie. Agreed. Okay, my number nine is uh, Dracula, 1931, directed by Todd Browning, starring Bela Lugosi. It's already been on your list, but uh, as, as lots of the horror movies back then, I, they do have this lots of downtime almost where nothing, it just drags a little bit. And Dracula is probably one of the worst for it. But uh, Lugosi as Dracula, whenever he's on, though, it's, it's you know, he's magnetic. You can see why he became, unfortunately, became typecast as, a, as Dracula. Right, because he just he just and the way it's lit and everything in film, it just it does an amazing job, and it's pretty much because of Lugosi that's why it's my number nine. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. It's an I iconic character as well. Right, right. Okay, and what have you got then for your number eight? All right, well my number eight is 1931's The Public Enemy, starring James Cagney and Gene Harlow and uh, an orange. 
uh, which will only make sense if you've seen the film. But um, it's a, yet another gangster film. Obviously, these were a big thing back then. Um, but uh, it, it's one of the few Gene Harlow films that I've seen. Uh, she was sort of an icon for a short period of time. I love James Cagney. Obviously, this is the third time he's appeared on my list. Uh, but this is sort of the prototypical gangster film. You know, it's an earlier one. It does have this scene which was considered very shocking uh, back in the day with him in this orange. I won't go into more detail than that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's a movie I've seen a couple times. I saw it when I was studying film in college. I've seen it on my own. I just really love it. Love a good gangster movie. And, and this one is one of those ones that's, it's it moves from start to finish. It doesn't slow down. And, uh, it, you know, it all sort of ends in a hail of bullets. And it's it's really fantastic. So. Public Enemy, 1931, Jimmy Cagney. What more do you need to know? A good choice. It didn't, uh, sadly, it didn't make my list, though, but purely because I saw it a long, long time ago. Oh, right, and right. I can't, I know, it, I know it's good, but I couldn't remember enough about it to uh, put it on my list. Right. That's so, completely understandable. Yeah, but that's one I need to revisit. My number eight is a 1923 silent romantic comedy starring my favorite silent movie star, although we did do some talkies, Harold Lloyd. And uh, it's Safety Last. Ah, uh, yes. And this is the one we've... Uh, if you've never seen it, you're, you're probably aware of it, even if you haven't seen any Harold Lloyd one. But it's the one where you see the image of him hanging off a clock face as it's dangling down over the side of a, off a skyscraper above moving traffic. It's sort of been riffed on lots of different... You know, over the years, other people have done it. But it's... I always felt Harold Lloyd was one of the best. I just I, I just find him a lot funnier. I think his comedy sort of has, has travelled through the ages a lot more than some of the other silent movie stars. Because there was this this crazy kind of stunt work going on, which Buster Keaton did as well. But Harold Lloyd was always felt a bit more more of an everyman as opposed to Buster Keaton's sad face clown kind of thing. Right. And this one is one of his best, where he's uh, it's got some, you know, it's got the romance thing, which all he's did. But he does he does all these amazing stunts, and you do think he's going to die in so many places because <laughs> right. they are so they look so dangerous, and it's just it's 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 his, it's his best one, and it's hilarious. And it's my number eight. A very good pick. I will say this. I have not actually seen that one yet, although I, I own it somewhere. But um, I haven't actually gotten into watching it yet. But I love Harold Lloyd as well. There's a small chance he might still appear on my list. We'll have to Ooh, wait and see. okay, yeah. I need to I, – I realize I don't actually own any Harold Lloyd on a right. DVD or Blu-ray. I need to go make a, make a visit to – the local video shop or the online stores and get one of them sorted out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. All right, well, my number seven is You Can't Take It With You from 1938. Uh, Yet another Frank Capra film starring Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur. And it's kind of a screwball comedy about a a man from a rich family of snobs who falls in love with a girl from a poor family of very eccentric people. And it's kind of a, a, you know, two different worlds meeting and clashing. And it's definitely an odd film. There's no two ways about it. It is it is a little just off kilter from your typical Hollywood films of the time. But I love me some Frank Capra. I adore Jimmy Stewart. Gene Arthur is one of those Hollywood, classic Hollywood actresses I've always really, really liked that was never as famous as I think she should have been. Uh, this is just a really fun movie. It's goofy and kooky and silly, and um, I, I really just love it. It's a lot of fun to watch, and it makes me smile when I watch it. So that's my pick. Excellent. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen it a while back, but it's not one. I do like Frank Capra and James Stewart, but that one, as you say, it's a bit different. And I think some of the characters are a bit too eccentric for my taste. Sure, I can totally understand that. Okay, my number seven is It Happened One Night, a 1934 film starring, oh, directed by and co-produced by Frank Capra. <laughs> He's all over st- this list. I know. Starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. And it was one of the first movies to win all five major Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress and Screenplay. And it's the classic one, you know, of a spoiled arrest. She uh, she heads off and she ends up bumping into this this guy played by Clark Gable. And they end up, you know, they don't get on. They have arguments, things like this. And they end up falling in love. But it's one of the classic <laughs> ones. It is funny. It's great performances by uh, by Gable and Colbert. And it's uh, and I think it's just recently been released on by Criterion. It has indeed. And it is an excellent edition of it. That's my number seven. Very good pick. Well, my number six is a film from 1925 starring one Harold Lloyd, and it is The Freshman. Harold Lloyd is a, a brilliant physical comedian. This one doesn't have him in so much danger as yeah. like Safety Last does, but it does have just some really – there's a great sequence at the school dance and, and like a, just some really, really amazing, funny 
physical comedy, and it's amazing. Like you said, it holds up so well. I mean, this film is almost a century old, and uh, I watched it just, I think, last year, and I, I laughed the, the entire way through. It's just so clever and so funny, and you know, people these days just can't do the types of physical comedy that Harold Lloyd did 100 years ago, which is which is rather fascinating. Oh, definitely, because yeah, I always find you watch, I watch Harold Lloyd films, and I laugh all the way through, Right. whereas I watch, I watch Charlie Chaplin films, and I can tell it the, the really well-made films, and I laugh and chuckle, but then there's lots of you know, there's big chunks of it where you're not sort of, you know, I'm just watching it going, well, yeah, it's still good, but, you know, I want a few more laughs. Right, right. I get you. I get you. But, uh, okay, well, my number six is 1931's Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. And you've already mentioned it, but it's uh, Boris Karloff as the, the classic monster. Uh, Pride of Frankenstein's a better film, in my opinion, but this one is still damn good. And the makeup is astounding. It still holds up. And it's why when we think of Frankenstein, it's because of, the way he looks, it's because of this film and Boris Karloff in that one. When you mention Frankenstein's monster, that's what we think of. Right. Even if you yeah. haven't seen the film, that's what we think of. Exactly. It is the definitive version of Frankenstein's monster, without a doubt. Yeah. Okay, so we're now into our top five. All right. Well, my number five is from 1939. It's one of the most famous movies of all time, and it is The Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh, yeah. I don't know what I really need to say about The Wizard of Oz. I mean, it's The Wizard of Oz. I... I it's great. It's fantastic. It could have been my number one easily. I, I chose a few uh, lesser-known films for my top four, I think, that are just ones that I have more passion for. But, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz is is just as classic as they come. The whole black-and-white-to-color thing, I mean, it made a star out of Judy Garland. And, you know, just even the makeup on the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow for, for the time are, are just so fantastic. And I was a big fan of L. Frank Baum's books when I was a kid. I read all of the Oz books. Yeah. And, um, you know, this one certainly captured the magic of those books, I think, or at least the first one. I know. It's a, it's an excellent film. It's a classic. It's It hasn't made my list, though. I mean, I enjoy it when it's on. I'm not sure why. It's Maybe I've seen it too many times, or I was never a fan of the whole Oz thing anyway. Okay, fair enough. Not, well, that's that's incorrect. I'm a, a fan, but not a huge fan. Sure, but, uh, that's fair. There's lots, lots of other films I'd much rather watch, but no, it is... It's again. It's another storming technical achievement as well. Right. Right. Okay. Well, my number five though is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Very good. And um, 1936 uh, romantic comedy, once again directed by Frank Capra, uh, starring Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur. And it's uh, John the Great Depression. Yeah. And it's basically about an everyman Deeds. Mr. Deeds. He gets taken to New York City, and it's about him trying to. He, he just wants. He's, he's an everyman who wants to be an everyman and do the right thing. And people try and change him, and he just he sticks true to his who he is, which is an important thing, and many of people forget to do that. But it, this is uh, Gary Gary Cooper's an amazing actor, and him and Gene Arthur do do this brilliantly. Very good pick. I have to confess, I've never actually seen the original. I've seen the Adam Sandler version, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I have never seen the original film. Sneaky, so it, sneaky. It, yeah, it couldn't it couldn't quite make my list, but I'm sure I'm sure it's excellent. Oh, it is a very good film. Okay, then. So what have you got for your number four? My number four is from 1921, and it is The Kid starring Charlie Chaplin. Ah, yes. Uh, and it is one of his first – I believe it actually is his first full-length film. It also stars a very young Jackie Coogan, and he plays his street tramp character who adopts a baby. And then at a certain point, um, the authorities kind of come looking for him, and, and him and the, the kid get in a lot of trouble out in the streets. And I really love it. It's one of the very first – it might be the first Chaplin film I ever saw. Uh, it was either The Kid or The Circus. I saw them both right around the same time, and I love them both. Um, but I, I just remember when I saw it, I was blown away by how funny it is. And um, it's 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 really fantastic. And I actually watched it with my kids uh, not that long ago, a few months ago. I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this on and let my kids watch it. And they really enjoyed it. The only thing that works against it, I think the only thing that kept it from even coming up a little higher, is the ending gets a little weird. Uh, when Chaplin gets knocked out and he goes into kind of this dream sequence with, with these angels and stuff, it definitely gets weird. Um, it's only about an hour, hour and ten minutes, but the first 40 minutes of this movie is pure perfection as far as I'm concerned. And then it has a really sweet ending. So um, I am a big Charlie Chaplin fan, and I do have a very soft spot for the kid. It's not one of his most famous movies, but it is one of the ones of his that I love the most. It's a, well, an excellent pick. But yeah, so many filmmakers back then, and uh, they seem to go for that dream sequence, which always I often felt jarring to the rest of the film. It's like when you're watching uh, Singing in the Rain and other Gene Kelly films. Yeah, he always has these these total dream sequences just for these elaborate dance things, which I always feel just go, oh, what are you doing? It's sort of it's taking <laughs> right. it all away. Right, it's, exactly. You know, it's, 
But uh, you know, it's an excellent choice. Uh, my number four, though, is I've mentioned some of the sequels quite a few times in previous years, but it's 1934's The Thin Man. I, the knew, first that, one. I knew that would be on your list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, directed by W.S. Van Dyke and based on the novel by Dashiell Hammett and stars the wonderful William Powell and men are lawyers, Nick and Nora Charles and their dog, Asta, played by Skippy. That's an, it was played by an actual dog, <laughs> not an actor called Skippy. Thanks for clarifying. Uh, but uh, it's, it's Nick Charles, a retired detective, and his socialite wife, Nora, they are uh, trying to settle down. They go off to New York and somebody approaches Nick to investigate a missing man. And it's again, it's a bit of a screwball thing. There's this witty dialogue and it's a mer- it, it turns into a murder mystery and there's just lots of things going on. It's very funny. And there's this, this terrific banter. The chemistry between William Powell and Mernaloy is stupendous. And I, I can't recommend them enough. Just go and get them and just, you know, they're just very funny and there's, a good mystery all wrapped up in there and you just uh, you just get pulled along with them as well and you want to be there with them having you know martinis and the like and just just start, stand there watching them and going oh, i wish i could talk like you too <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a great film it didn't make my list mostly because it's been so long since i've seen it i i know i enjoy it but i wasn't sure kind of where it would have fallen on my list in terms yeah, of enjoyment yeah. so I, I just left it off but it, it is a great film and i do enjoy it Top three now. Let's see if any of ours are going to line up. My number three is from 1939, and it is Stagecoach, starring John Wayne and directed by John Ford. I believe it's the first pairing from John Wayne and John Ford. Mm. Uh, And it is a Western, which isn't normally my my favorite genre. As you can tell, none of them on my list so far have been Westerns. But this movie is just utterly, utterly fantastic. It's It's got just this amazing shot of John Wayne when he enters the scene that's just so iconic and knocks you off your feet and, and shows him as this hero. And it's sort of a very typical story of kind of a group of, of you know people protected by this lone hero against overwhelming odds and bad guys. Very prototypical stuff, but it, it's all done so well. John Ford was an amazing director. He really knew how to stage an action sequence and, and how to craft this just classic Western. And uh, I, I think Stagecoach really is just one of the best Westerns pretty much of all time. Uh, another excellent choice. I didn't make my list purely because I haven't seen it in such a long time. Right. That and happens uh, a lot with these older Yeah, do, doing this list, there's so many films where I would look at going, oh, I've got to watch that again. Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. But no, it's, uh, I'm glad I made your list, though. It's, uh, it is, well, it's John Wayne, and it's, uh, it, is a, it is a classic. Yeah. But it's really say that about every single one of these films, pretty much, couldn't Pretty you? much, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Okay, but my number three is 1939's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. On Notre Dame, uh, but it stars Charles Lawton as Quasimodo, Maureen O'Hara as Esmeralda, and it had one of the biggest sets ever constructed of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. You know the story of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but it's this one, it's just, it's an epic big thing, and Charles Lawton as, as Quasimodo is just, is hideous, but so, you know, you know, you feel for him so much, he just has this love for Esmeralda, and it's, I remember, I saw it when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, maybe even a bit younger though, and, it, and when it ends, you just, uh, you know, Tears pouring down your face because it's so sad. But the, the the journey there, you have this. Well, you see the proper bad guys who you want to punch in the face because they're treating everybody so badly. And there's Quasimodo trying to do the right thing, and and the bells, the bells, and all this stuff. <laughs> and it's uh, I'd say magical, but it's it's a sad kind of magical. This this romance that's you know unrequited love, which is uh, yeah, it's a beautiful film and very very sad. Uh, yes, very good pick. I've actually never seen the original, at least not the whole way through. I think I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I don't recall ever having sat down and watched the whole thing. Yeah. So, uh, But I should because I, I do – I actually really like the Disney version even though it's not one of the more popular Disney films. I think it's, no, a, it's very a good one. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a forgotten one, that one, right, Disney one. Right, and I happen to uh, enjoy that. So I definitely need to check out this original that I know is a classic but just hadn't gotten around to it. So it couldn't be on my list. Well, my number two has already appeared on your list. Ooh. It is – is it happened one night from 1934. Um, And uh, I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, we mentioned this a few uh, months ago in our top five Oscar winning films list. I believe it was number one or two on my list back then too. So obviously this is a film I'm very fond of. I did see it for the first time just in the last year or two when it came out on that Criterion edition that you mentioned earlier. But it's it's Clark Gable, it's Claudette Colbert, it won 11 Academy Awards. It's one of the prototypical, you know, romance films where they where they meet cute, don't like each other and then fall in love. I mean, it's one of the first films to really do that 
and become so successful at it that it really set the standard for the next century of, of filmmaking. So uh, I love it, and it's just a really great, really funny film that holds up extremely well. An excellent choice. I think uh, a few weeks back it was I saw I spotted it on uh, Netflix here in the UK, so it might still be on there. But oh, very cool. Okay, well, my number two is one that's been on your list. And it's uh, 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Very good. Frank Capra, James Stewart, Gene Arthur, filibusting, you know, politics, blah, blah, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Frank Capra, he just, he made some amazing films with, with amazing actors. Right. And it's, I mean, Claude Rains is also in this one. And I know what you mean about the ending as well, but uh, I mean, it's James Stewart in a Frank Capra film. <laughs> yeah. And he's really, really terrific in it. I mean, he yeah, is just fantastic. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go then when... We're on our final film, and what have you got for your number one? All right. Well, my number one is not one of the bigger named movies on this list. It's uh, it's not one of the most famous films, but it is one that I really, really love. It is from 1938. It is directed by Alfred Hitchcock, which will come as a surprise to nobody, <laughs> and it is The Lady Vanishes. Uh, it's not even one of his most famous films, but it's just – so cool it's it's a woman on a train and she gets talking to this this you know british governess a slightly older lady and then she falls asleep when she wakes up the woman is gone and nobody else on the train remembers her even being there yeah it's a cracking story yeah she goes off in search of this woman and can't find anybody to help her can't find anyone who can even corroborate that she was there and so then it becomes a question of is she losing her mind is there a conspiracy at work what's going on why can't she find this woman and boy it is just a really fantastic thriller it's it's a fast-paced film you know once it gets moving it's a really great mystery because until the end you really don't know what's going on and it, it keeps you guessing and it keeps you on the edge of your seat and i'll tell you i watched it not that long ago and it really holds up it's just a really great exciting film and uh it, it's hitchcock you know before he became this sort of household name it's sort of on the cusp of that of him really becoming a famous you know auteur but uh it's just a film that i really love and i'm i'm impressed when a film from that era can can keep me guessing and keep me so engaged all the way to the end that's a that's a pretty special movie so that's why the lady vanishes is my number one if you haven't seen it I can't recommend yeah, it. Yeah, uh, I really recommend it as well. It didn't make my list. It almost did in one of the earlier drafts of it. It was in the, it was in my top 30. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, but no, it's it's a really good one. I mean, it's been made. There's been other versions of it as well, but uh, Hitchcock's is damn fine. Yes. Okay, but my number one, without further ado, is from 1938. And it's a bit of Buckle Your Swashes. It's The Adventures of Robin Hood. Ah, yes. Starring Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Basil Rathbone and Claude Rains. I uh, don't really have to, need to go into the story, but it's right. it's it's got uh, amazing sword fights. Oh, it's just it's colourful, and uh, you know, Errol Flynn was this you know was this god on the screen. And I remember he walks one bit where he just walks into you know everybody's having this big banquet, and then he walks in, he's got like a deer over his shoulders, dead deer, and he just you know throws it onto the table and is just ripping into uh, Sheriff and Nottingham, and it's just oh it's great. Which it's Robin Hood and it's got Errol Flynn and it's got some of the best sword fights that have ever been seen on film. Yes, yes, it does. It's a great pick. You know, it's funny. That didn't make my list, obviously, as I've just finished my list. <laughs> it's one of those movies that I have mixed feelings about. I love the sword fights. I love Errol Flynn. He's so dashing and debonair. Um, but I find watching the movie that there are, there are enough slow parts in it that sometimes I get a little bit like... Uh, can we move this along a little bit? I know that's funny because yeah, some people yeah. don't feel that way. Obviously, you don't. It's your number one pick. But it's just it's just it's one of those things that I remember when I think about it is like, oh, I love that movie, but there's some parts I don't love. So that's mm -hmm. why I didn't make my list. But clearly, it's a classic. It's one of the most loved classic Hollywood films. So I think it's an excellent choice. Thank you very much. I think it's an excellent list. But, but there's been a few times where we've said that lots of some of these films have some big slow bits, and I wonder that's that's because of the way films are in this day and age. Oh, sure. I mean, just, I'll be the yeah. first to admit I have a very short attention span. So, you know, um, I'm not I'm not the best judge of what's slow and what isn't. But, you know, that's just as a personal how I relate to it, you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah. then I look at movies like The Lady Vanishes, which I think is, you know, cracking from start to finish. So I, I think part of it is me and my attention span. And part of it is that films just were more deliberately slow paced back then as well, because that's kind of the way storytelling was 70, 80, 90 years ago. Oh, well, no, that's an excellent point. But uh, that's been our list from those various years. Let us know what you thought of the list and what you would choose from the years we mentioned. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you know, just search for After the Ending Podcast and you'll find us. And we're also on various podcast platforms if you, you can't always listen to us on whatever you're listening to now. Right. 
And that is going to wrap up our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes for this week, which will get us all caught up for our special episode next week. So, Phil, tell people what is so special about next week's episode. Well, it's going to be our 50th episode. Can yeah, you believe it? Yeah, exciting? No, yeah. number 50. Oh. I got to say, we're a little bit excited about that. I hope everybody out there listening is as well. But Phil and I, we're doing a little happy dance because we're hitting our episode number 50, which is a bit of a milestone in the podcast world, I think. Yes, well, it certainly is. And this is our 50th full episode because regular listeners will know we have had some mini or bonus episodes just, you know, when holidays and things come in. But this is going to be our 50th full episode. Let that sink in. That means we've done 100 after the endings, 100 films after the endings. So that's going to be kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, it what, is. What an accomplishment. We've got We've got hours of us talking that people can listen to or ignore, depending on what they think of it. I was going to say, <laughs> I, some people would say that's an accomplishment. Other people would probably be, use a different word. But I'm going to stick with the ones who, who like us, and we'll call it an accomplishment. But, uh, yeah, we're pretty excited. So so to celebrate our 50th episode, we thought we would do something a little bit different, and we're going to tackle a couple of films that break some of our rules, and we're going to do something a little different with our, our top 10 list. So, Phil, tell people exactly what they can look forward to next week. Yes, Next week, we will be, as you say, breaking our rules a bit because we're going to be doing a couple of films which have already had sequels, but they're much beloved films and the sequels weren't quite what people were expecting. We're not saying they were bad, uh, although in some respects, parts of them were, some weren't, but they just quite, they weren't quite what people expected. So we're going to give a, our after the endings to Predator and Aliens. Yes. Yes, so, uh, and so we can go, especially with the news recently where Neil Blomkamp kind of sequel to Aliens is uh, looks like that's dead it's, that means we have free reign to do whatever we want yeah and also we'll find out or will we find out what happened to Arnie who knows you'll have to find, join us next week yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that, you know, Alien 3 was a huge disappointment for almost everybody except for the most diehard David Fincher fans. And Predator, and we just talked about Predator 2 last week. It's a very enjoyable film, but I think most people wanted to see Arnold Schwarzenegger back and, and never got that chance. So we're going to take over. We're going to bring back Schwarzenegger. Perhaps, perhaps not. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that I will. I'm just going to throw that out there. Spoiler alert, he'll be in my ending. Yeah, I think I, he's going to pop up in mine at least. Yeah, and then and then we're going to do a follow-up to Aliens that maybe doesn't see the entire cast dying, at least not right off the bat. So um, kind of a chance to, I don't want to say right some wrongs, but oh hell, I'm just going to say it. We're going to try and right some wrongs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because sadly, I think for Alien 3, it was uh, the fact it was a new Alien film. I I think if it had been a different kind of sci-fi film with a different kind of creature... It probably would have worked. Yeah, been a bit more successful. Yeah, agreed. But it's it was definitely let down. I know for me personally. So, yeah. uh, Aliens and Predator, two of the most beloved sci-fi films of our times, and we're going to go ahead and give them the endings that we think they deserve. And then, what are we doing for our hundred years of Hollywood, Phil? Oh well, I'm glad you asked, Mike. We'll be doing our top ten films of the previous fifty years we've already done. So all the ones we've had for number one are in the mix. So we've got to choose from quite a few films. That's going to be a tricky one, isn't it? Just trying to think of it now. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. So we're going to span a range of years from 1917 all the way through 2016. And we're going to, you know, it's going to be the 50 years that we've already talked about on the show. We're going to try and go through those years and pick our top 10 films out of those 50 years, which is going to be no easy task at all. Yes. yes. I think this is going to be rewritten a few times. Yeah, I'm sure. That's why we kind of played catch up in this episode. So we had a full 50 years to choose from. Uh, and we wanted to do something a little bit special for our 50th episode. So we're going to be talking about some really big films in next week's episode, I think. So uh, we got Aliens, we got Predator, and we've got 10 of the best films from the past 100 years of movies. What more could you ask for? Exactly. That's it. You can't miss it, you know, and you won't miss it because you can listen to it anytime because it's a podcast. That's right. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. I'm excited to see what Mike's going to pick. Likewise. Because we, we, we don't know. Uh, we often get like similar film in the top three, but we don't often have the same number one. So right. I think it's going to be a, a wide range of films. Yeah. Yeah. This one, this one could be interesting, I think, to see where we split on these. You know, there's certainly a lot more, a lot more movies to choose from. So they could end up with wildly different lists or maybe they'll be wildly similar. Who knows for yeah. sure? Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that. So please come back and join us then. Uh, we're very excited about it and we hope you will be too. Yes. All right, well, on that note, then, it is time for us to sign off. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening for 49, soon-to-be 50 episodes. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Very cool. All right. There's there's one one other bit of trivia. This is the best bit of trivia ever. Okay, I can't wait. (sighs) Join us next time. That was a cliffhanger, you (laughs) said.
<laughs> wow. Yeah. The delivery could have been better, but you that, get the idea. That was painful. It was. Yeah. I felt bad just saying it. <laughs> so God know how people feel listening to it. Right. <laughs> and who else did it start? Is there anybody else? I don't know. I'm supposed to look that up before we start recording. I, I know I did. But <laughs> like Charlie Chaplin, they're not. They weren't my favourites. You know, old timey whammy, silent. Oh, I forget what I'm going to ignore that bit. Okay, just go on to yours. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it's. Uh... <sighs> Can't read my writing. <laughs> Chair creak down. Uh, starring my. Nah. Okay. <laughs> Our top ten list. So fill fill people in. No, that sounds silly when I say fill fill. <laughs> fill fill. Fill fill. <laughs>